thank you everyone for joining us. We are joined today by Dr. Albert Moeller, and many of our listeners are already quite familiar with you, Dr. Moeller, but perhaps we have some who are meeting you for the first time. Uh, Dr. Moeller is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's a theologian and author, and he hosts podcasts like The Briefing and Thinking in Public, and not to mention a husband and a father. So we're going to start off with just a couple of softball questions to get moving here so that our listeners can get to know you. So here's the first one. When you and Mary have a free day to yourselves, how do you guys like to spend the time together? Oh, you know, uh, we really enjoy uh, being at the lake and, uh, you know, having lunch together. And uh, we like uh, more than anything else. I'll just tell you that's how fast forward is being with our grandkids. So that's, that's the most important thing. We would skip any meal just to spend time with the grandkids. Yeah, I hear from a lot of people that if they knew grandparenting was going to be so good, they would have skipped right to that. Yeah, it, it doesn't work that way. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but it is it is really, really sweet and uh, yeah. just sweeter than I can explain. OK, second, second question here. Favorite vacation spot. Oh, uh, I would simply say we we really enjoy being we we have a a, a lake to which we go two for two two for two I'm seeing a theme here yeah. okay if you could watch any movie again what would be the the movie that you would go back and rewatch uh, depends upon the mood yeah uh, if if uh, you know I uh, if if I'm thinking deep thoughts I'll uh, I'll watch uh, Isaguru's uh, The Remains of the Day if I need yeah. therapy. What about Bob? What about Bob? That's good. Okay. This may also be a depending on the mood kind of question as well, but favorite kind of music? Oh, I, I like too many kinds of music. I'm a big classical music fan. And of course, that's a, that covers way too much waterfront. But I, I like a lot of different kinds of music. And uh, But if, if I could just have one, um, it would uh, it would be pretty traditional classical music because I think that covers the range of human expressions and for all kinds Beautiful. of worldview reasons is really important. Beautiful. This is, this is good. So good to get to know different parts of your personality. So you, you've said on the briefing podcast that secularism is the loss of the binding assumption of theism. What do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, the vast majority of Americans still say that they believe in God, but that belief doesn't have any binding authority. And so one of the things you see in the Old Testament, for example, is that uh, the one true and living God demands uh, that his authority be binding. His word is is, is command. His uh, his very existence comes with imperative. And uh, and and when he says this is reality, when he says this is marriage, when he says this is morality, when he says these are the ten words or the ten commandments, they, have, they come with binding authority. And it's generalized beyond that throughout the Christian tradition to where we understand that the very fact of Christianity, even among people who might not have been regenerate or or confessing Christians. Nonetheless, Christianity had a binding authority upon the whole culture. You know, you you want to know what life is and how it is to be respected and defended. Well, that that that's based in the binding authority of theism. And uh, so, same thing. Uh, just, just the loss of the binding authority of theism explains why so many people can say they believe in God and yet it has so little effect. Yeah, yeah. You know, us here at Awana, we are. As you know, we are singularly focused mm -hmm. on child discipleship, right. and 
we're dedicated towards raising a generation that has a is uh ruthlessly committed to not having that kind of uh wishy-washy type of theism but we're in this moment this cultural divide between the secular world and being a convictional christian it's a big open question but what do you see as maybe sort of the top two or maybe three of the key issues that are most impacting children today from that convictional Christianity that you speak about every day? Well, I think what's absolutely new, and, and, and by the way, when I mean absolutely new, I mean new in so far as we know human existence, is the uh, the gender question that is now being foisted upon children and young people, as in self-identity is something that you now choose or discover within yourself. and it, It's not tied to biology. It's not tied to your body, and it's certainly not restricted that way. You talk about binding authority. It's just un, unbound. I don't think it's possible to uh, exaggerate the impact of that negatively on children. I mean, it forces on children. We already know. I mean, even the the secular psychologists of the 20th century were talking about, you know, the problem of identity crisis among children and adolescents. Well, why don't we just blow that up, uh, which is what's going on right now. So I, I think that that's one big thing. I think the other thing we have to recognize is that children and young people have been offered all kinds of supports in previous generations that are now just being knocked down. So the second thing would be, you know, the normativity of the two-parent home, uh, the support and uh, encouragement of the extended family, the uh, the care of long-term uh, neighborhoods. Uh, you know, I tell people, look, when I was 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, um, as a boy, I ran around with other kids my age, and we were just under constant neighborhood mom patrol, just because every, 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 everybody knew where we were. Uh, the entire neighborhood was intact. Uh, everybody knew everybody. And, uh, you know, I didn't even think about it at the time, but that was an enormous support that a lot of kids now just, I mean, absolutely don't have. So in other words, there's an intactness of society, an intactness of marriage, an intactness of family that has left a lot of children, once it's gone, quite vulnerable. Mm -hmm. you, you alluded to this even as you began to go down this pathway just a moment ago. But when we were together a few months ago, you talked quite a bit about identity. Where where does our identity come from? Yeah. You know, this is a great question because uh, uh, it kind of amplifies something we were just talking about. Uh, everybody's had to worry about identity. Uh, you know, and and uh, th that's that's been one of the crises of uh, of, of individualism. Um, and of the human person going all the way back. You see this reflected in scripture. Uh, you see it kind of writ large, and you, you see it small. When the psalmist says, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Uh, you know, the question, who am I? You know, it it it, uh, it, it, it shows up uh, in, in modern music in so many different ways, shows up in in, in modern culture, but, but it's, it's old. It's no question. The difference is that the answer used to be a lot easier for people, even at the individual level, to frame. Who am I? Well, I can tell you what. I'm I'm male or female. I'm 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 a boy who'll become a man. I'm a girl who will become a woman. Uh, and you know, throughout so, so many centuries, it, it, there wasn't even really a, like a question of whether you're going to be a, you know, it wasn't a vocational yeah. question of identity. If your dad's a blacksmith, you're a blacksmith. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, and and so all that was very fixed, and so identity kind of fell into place. And Christianity said, here's who you are, because the scripture says, here's who you are. Uh, you know, you look at something like Martin Luther's, uh, you know, little catechism. And, uh, you know, you know, child, who are you? You know, <laughs> and, and it's answered in a clear biblical sense. Um, and and that's, that's just missing now. And, and But it has gone through the period where in the, in the 19th and 20th centuries, 
even the intellectual class said, you know, this is a big crisis. Maybe the modern age has made it a lot worse. It did. Maybe the industrial revolution has made it a lot more complicated. It did. Uh, you know, maybe all the social movement of the 20th century, maybe that has made it, you know, more difficult. It did. But it was seen as kind of a challenge that the entire society needed to help people overcome. Now it has become an essential life project. So it's really interesting that now, by the way, this identity crisis is not a phase of life. It's, con it, it's considered to be the life. It's considered to be the life project. And uh, so th that that's an enormous amount of weight to put on a child. It's an enormous weight to put on an adult, by the way. It's a horrifying weight to put on an adolescent. And we, we see the results of that. And, you know, just uh, even at the time where we're having this conversation this week, there's been enormous national headlines about you know a crisis in mental health among young people the, the numbers by the way are just horrifyingly yeah. high well you know we did this as a society we did this and uh it's up to us to uh, address this but you know we don't control the society but those of us who are christians trying to really minister to children and young people uh you know one of the most incredible things we can do is say that the cure to the identity crisis I mean, not that we never have any questions or all the rest, but the 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 security is is found in Christ. Mm -hmm. mm. One of I think the biggest blocks, even just for me with my own children, is the recognition between the weaknesses of my own discipleship right. and how I am to try to form them in this rapidly changing culture that is asking these questions that I never had to ask. Right. That is now putting that is asking these questions and putting these questions upon them that my even myself at age 32 were are so foreign to me looking at my own young kids. How can we help parents who may have or children's ministry leaders who may have feel similarly ill equipped recognize that just because the world is moving so quick and the world has changed so much doesn't mean that God has changed at all. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, let me give you a little bit of encouragement. I say this often to Christian parents and, and, and to Christian pastors as well. You don't have to be 100 steps in front of anybody on this. You just, especially like thinking of being a parent with your kids, you don't need to be 100 steps ahead of them. If you're two steps ahead, you're, you, you, <laughs> that's mm -hmm. a great achievement. Most of the days I'm one and a half. So yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'm working for towards two. Yeah, yeah. No, I get it. But ahead and not behind, that's the issue. <laughs> and so I, I, I would just say that I think sometimes parents have an unreal expectation of how prepared they are to be to talk about all these things or yeah. to deal with all these things. And so it's part of why we need the church. The church is made up of believers. And, uh, you know, we encourage one another. We resource one another. We uh, we teach. We model one another. We call out faithfulness in one another. And we're there for each other. And so, you know, what some of the most wonderful conversations I have as a grandfather now is with younger fathers who say, you know, what does this sound like? And I go, well, that sounds like normal. Um, and, and, you know, uh, prob probably if your parents heard this, they would say it sounds like you, uh, but, but beyond that, there are new things we have to deal with, but look, Christianity can handle all of this and, and the church can handle all of this. And, you know, parents can handle all of this, but it's, it's just irrational to think that all of a sudden Christian parents who needed each other and needed the local church and needed support a hundred years ago are just supposed to be fine on their own with a smartphone these days. Yeah. So some some of these topics we're discussing here, uh, they're they're big, they're scary, they, they can cause fear in us. So, so what what role does as we're surrounded by these issues, especially if we live in a, in a more of an uh, urban context, so what what role does compassion play in all of it? How are how are we to live as truth you know truth bearing gospel 
witnesses, but also compassionate people in our communities. Yeah, the fact that there is something of a distinction is the problem. Uh, and, and look, it's it's the human problem. So I'm not saying we don't need to make the distinction, but I mean, in God, the perfections are indivisible. Mm. So in other words, people say, "How do you you know balance God's love and God's mercy?" Well, they're not. They're He's infinite in both, and yeah. it perfect. It, it it's we you know little creatures that need different terms to describe God. He's not loving you know over here and just over here. He's just perfectly loving, perfectly just all the time. Well, as as we know, we're made up of many parts and we feel the parts. We're we're sinners and we're finite. So we do have to work at holding these things together. And God, they're, they're just together. We, we got we got to hold them together. But you know what? It is central to the Christian biblical worldview to understand that good, the ultimate good thing. So you might say the Christian theological traditions talk about this as the transcendentals, the good, the beautiful, and the true. They're not really separate things. They're just different words we have to have to kind of talk about the same wonderful, good, perfect thing. Mm. And uh, and so when we talk about truth and compassion, one of the first things we need to recognize is only, only in our sinfulness and confusion do we have to kind of work at keeping the two together. But here's what we know, and, and that is that neither one gives way to the other. And I think this is a very big issue. I really appreciate you asking it. Because I think Christians sometimes think, well, we need to kind of hold back truth here out of compassion. Uh, or, uh, you know, uh, you could reverse it. The, the fact is that just doesn't work. And so, for instance, if you have a young person struggling with sexual identity or gender identity questions, um, I mean, first of all, I know Christians are going to love them anyway, just because as Christians looking at a fellow person made in the image of God, and certainly a young person, our hearts are naturally drawn in, in the right way uh, to love and to protect and respect young people. And, uh, and, and and yet at the same time, you know, as compassionate as we want to be, compassion is truth. And so we can't, we can't affirm what we know to be untrue. But you know what, we can just show compassion in every way we can. And, and sometimes, and I mean, we, we all face this in this very confused world, sometimes Compassion means telling the truth and then making clear, I'm not throwing this at you. I'm always here for you. This is mm. this is what I believe to be God's perfect plan for you and for me. And yep. uh, you you may reject this, uh, but I'm not going to reject you. Mm. Yeah, you're you know you're rubbing shoulders and, and having dialogue and engagement with young adults every day on the campus of Southern Seminary. Uh, mm -hmm. Certainly, we are on a regular basis as well. What do, what do you do when a young person says to you, hey, I see all the infighting in the church, or I see the church scandals that are happening. You know, I, I love Jesus. I want to follow Jesus, but I'm just losing my confidence in the church. How would you respond to that young person? Well, first of all, their, their moral outrage is entirely legitimate, but it can be uh, it can be misdirected. So, in other words, if you're looking for the perfect you have to wait for the kingdom of Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the real test of the church is not scandal, but how we deal with scandal. Uh, the real challenge for the Christian church is not sin, but how we deal with sin. And uh, because after all, we are sinners saved by grace. Sin's going to show up. Where you put human beings, sin's going to show up. The Christian church is the church that answers the sin with the gospel and is clear about upholding all the scripture teaches. And so, yeah, we're going to be embarrassed at times by scandal. We are going to be buffeted at times by loss. But, uh, you know, if you look over time, you look over 20 centuries, the church is the vessel of truth. 
and as the body of Christ has endured many dangers, toils, and snares, and uh, that includes much, much sin. And it's not because of our faithfulness the church has survived, it's because of Christ's faithfulness. And we can't do without it. At the end of the day, um, the church is still not only the body of Christ, but for the redeemed, it's our refuge. And uh, yeah, we're always having to work at it uh, until Christ comes. But uh, when Christ comes, that's how we need to be found, working at it. Speaking of Christ coming, you've said on the briefing that the gospel is the best definition of reality. I would love for you to explain that to listeners who maybe that's a new quote to them. Yeah. So, you know, we all have to have a basic understanding of reality if we're going to operate in the world. And, uh, you know, this is one of the reasons why uh, I tell people, uh, look, if, if, if you get a left wing ideological progressive neo-Marxist academic and I'm sitting down next to him, uh, we both basically agree a cat's a cat. Now things get complicated after that, <laughs> you know. But it, 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 at least at the operational, like we got to go to the bank together and uh, at whatever level, we believe two plus two equals four. So, in other words, um, we all have to start with some kind of reality. The, the big questions, though, are what's behind all of that, and that's where the biblical worldview asks and, and and answers the foremost important questions of any worldview. And every worldview has to answer them. The question: Why is there something rather than nothing? What's gone wrong with the world? Is there any hope? And what does the future hold? Every human being is walking around with some operational set of answers to that question. And, uh, you know, the Gospels answer, based on Scripture, those four questions is, why is there something rather than nothing? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And by the way, included in all that is God made us male and female, gave us the institution of marriage, uh, you know, all that God gave us in creation, all the structures of creation. That's why there's something rather than nothing. It means something. And then what's gone wrong with the world? Well, again, you're in chapter three of the Bible. In Genesis three, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, Paul explains. You have sin enters into the world. So that means that when something goes wrong, when a child misbehaves, when we sin and know we have, it's not because we just are making some kind of independent moral judgment. It is because God has established a moral reality and has issued a commandment we have broken. And, and that brokenness has consequences throughout the entire world. And so we have an explanation for why things go wrong, for why people do things. It's an explanation that covers everything from grand larceny to termites. And it all comes back to sin. If, if you don't answer those first two questions that way, if you end up with like a Darwinist or evolutionary understanding of life, well, then life doesn't have any meaning. And if, and if what's gone wrong is just some kind of social pathology, then you got to find some social form of, of redemption. So that third question is, you know, is there any hope and, uh, and, and, and how can things be made right? And that's where we, again, the biblical worldview, the gospel could not be more clear. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him might not perish and have everlasting life. The gospel is the story of God's redemption of sinful humanity. It's the only way I can be made right. It's the only way you can be made right. Uh, and uh, that's, uh, that, that is the very heart of the gospel in Christianity. And that means that other things may have a good effect. You know, in other words, education has a good effect. Um, law and order has a good effect. Um, you know, programs to make sure that uh, that uh, people drive on the right side of the road, and and you know that that food in the in the store is safe. That the, they all have a good effect. None of them can lead to salvation. None of them can reverse the curse. Only the gospel does. Only God does in Christ. 
And then the fourth question, where is history headed? Where's all this going? You know, that's one of the reasons why the secular worldview, based upon the fact that whatever's in the future, it's not the kingdom of Christ because there is no God. Instead, it's it's just some kind of death and nothingness and abyss. And then you got to have everything right now. And that that's one of the frustrations, by the way, of the secularists is that, you know, you can't have everything right now. Uh, you eventually die and, uh, you know, somebody else comes and wastes your stuff. Mm. And, and But the Christian worldview says, you know, you're not going to have everything in this life ever. So enjoy this life and live this life in faithfulness in right proportion. But we're being prepared for something better in eternity. Mm. Mm. That was a long answer, but you did ask. The big <laughs> no, that was really good. That was really good. You know, strangely enough, from Grand Larceny to Termites is the title of Ross's upcoming book, but that's yeah. just a little bit of a coincidence. It's going to be an album I put as it well. That way before, but I, I, I think I need to preach a message with that title. I like it. Okay, so another question here, and if this is something uh, that you did attend for public consumption that we talked about a few months ago, we'll edit this out. But you, you talked about an interesting framework of how you work with other partners, starting with a broad wide foundation, almost like a pyramid of creation going up to another level of gospel and then a, a higher mm-hmm. level of like local local church sure. mission and practice. Yeah. Could, could you could you walk our listeners through that? It really was a really interesting framework for helping us understand how should we form partnerships or as we move forward as Christ followers in today's world? Yeah, it has to be in the right level. And, and thus we, we need to make sure we know what we're doing in, in the right domain, you might say. And by the way, the Confession of Faith of my denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, actually has this in confessional form. It's in our Confession of Faith. Um, uh, and it, it comes down to the fact that we can cooperate with any person, just a level of creation. You know, every human being made in the image of God. I can cooperate with any human being in doing good works. And so that means if uh, if there's a house on fire in the neighborhood, I can stand with a Harry Krishna and a Christian scientist and an atheist and uh, a Methodist and a Presbyterian and a Zoroastrian, and uh, we can pass the, the 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 water bucket from one to the other to put out a house fire. There's no theological compromise there, right? There's no there's no there's no theology that is uh, invoked in this. Uh, there's a fire to be put out, and I'm going to help put out that fire, and I'm going to join with anybody who will help put out that fire. Um, the second level is gospel work, and uh, you know I was chairman of a Billy Graham crusade. Uh, when Dr. Graham was preaching, I've been deeply involved in these issues. And uh, so if I'm going to do evangelism, um, then I can only do that with gospel people. I can only do it with gospel churches. I was part of a movement called Together for the Gospel. That, that, that's what it was all about. And so I can put out a fire with uh, Harry Krishna, but I, you know, if I'm going to do gospel work, it's got to be with gospel churches. And it's got to be people who clearly articulate the gospel and defend the gospel. And so you got the creation level, then you have the gospel level, then you have the third one is the ecclesial or the church level. And so, you know, I'm a, I'm a Baptist. You won't be surprised by that. And so I'll simply say the church level is where you do, for instance, church discipline. You know, when when there, there's there's a need for correction, when uh, when there's a need for uh, what what can only take place in the fellowship of the local church, even in encouragement. You know, I, I you can do gospel cooperation with all who believe the gospel. But uh, when you need somebody to go visit someone in the hospital, that's where the local church becomes absolutely instrumental. And uh, so those those three levels, creation, where you can join with anyone in doing a good thing, 
And like I tell people, like you, there's no theological compromise if there's a Muslim kid on the Little League team. In mm. fact, that, that could be a real opportunity. Mm. Uh, and and to, just to you affirm the Imago Dei, you love that kid and you love the family. And for that matter, let me go further. There is nothing wrong with being on a Little League team where one of the boys who comes on the team has two moms. There's nothing wrong with playing baseball. There's nothing wrong with loving that kid. There's nothing wrong with uh, uh, sharing that experience uh, with the ones identified as his two moms. There's no theological compromise there. At the level of gospel work, it's got to be limited to those who know and love and defend and share and are shaped by the gospel. And when it comes to local church work, well, that's what the local church is all about. And there are certain things you can do in the local church and uh, that don't belong anywhere else. So I think that's what you're asking. I hope that was helpful. That's exactly right. And Ross, for our listeners, you know, as you're driving, get, going to work or however you're listening to this, ho- hopefully you see that pyramid. It's very broad at the bottom, uh, created in the image of God in Mago Day. Uh, as we move up into gospel and then we get closer to that top where we're talking about those we gather with locally and most tightly aligned with, it's such a brilliant framework and helping us as Christ followers understand how we would view partnership, how we would view how we navigate through this world and work with others. So it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. I want to, wow, there's like 10,000 different directions we could have gone there. Uh, But I want to say maybe the least controversial thing that I've ever said on this podcast, which is you are clearly such a gifted communicator. And um, I know, stop the presses. I just said that Dr. Muller is a gifted communicator. But the thing for me in that is I think that what has struck me so much in preparing for this conversation is you have an ability to continue to not move an inch off the gospel, speak incredibly clear biblical truth, but with a level of nuance and compassion and understanding, despite the fact that you literally host a daily uh, news-driven conversation those of us who are listening are listening in an incredibly polarized environment where it seems like everything is getting just louder and more noisy. And yet when I listen to you, it feels like you are cutting across the noise. How are you able to continue to do that in your communication when you, it would be so easy for you to become just another loud voice? Well, that's a very encouraging word. I thank you for it. Uh, I, I will tell you that uh, it'd be very easy just to join the the noise, and uh, there, there's a certain reward in that, frankly, commercially. In other words. <laughs> uh, but uh, I I I, I want to tell you uh, I'm going to give you a theological answer for that, and that is Please. number one, the structures of grace. So the structures of grace in my life are such that uh, I've got checks in my life that are just really really important. Number one is named Mary. I am married to her and have been for 40 years. And, uh, you know, that's an amazing thing simply because uh, I don't want to say anything that would embarrass her. I don't want to say anything that she would think is not rightly said. That That's a very good check. And I'll tell you, marriage is a very good buffer because the bottom line is, and, and I'll just speak as a husband, um, there's a very significant check on what we might think and say and do. Uh, and just insert your wife's name there, because uh, you do not want to disappoint her. You do not want to lose face in front of her. You don't want her disappointed in you. I don't want her disappointed in me. Uh, and then children, 
that's the other thing, structure of grace. This is God's creation plan. You know what? Children make you grow up. And so, so I tell people, I, I often hear young couples say, you know, we're not sure we're ready for children. Well, and children make you ready for children, buddy. Uh, you know, <laughs> if if you're waiting for children, let me just tell you, you're never you're never going to hit that that stage. Uh, you know, uh, the children make parents adults, and, and 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 grow us up. And you know what? Parents find not only the instant, you know, instant urgency of of dealing with this child and loving this child and taking care of this child, but also just simultaneously, again by God's plan, the instant joy the instant satisfaction, and the instant change of perspective. So uh, our daughter Katie was born uh, now, you know, three decades ago, now the uh, married mom of three little children. And uh, when she was born, I had to go, I had to leave my wife and the baby in the hospital and go and get something that being a first-time father, I had uh, failed to do. I ran out in a hurry, left something, guess what? It was needed. Who knew? So anyway, I'm going back to get booties, uh, which sure. uh, were an important thing. Mm-hmm. You can't have a picture of this baby without feet covered. Okay, Absolutely. so Ian, not my idea, but trust me, it was important. So, so I was going <laughs> That home. sound you hear is listeners everywhere agreeing. So yeah. yes. <laughs> Got it. Got it. They have to match. Mm-hmm. Okay. So here's the here's the deal. Um, I was nearly run off the road by a, a semi-tractor trailer truck that lost control in front of me. Mm. And you know what? My thought, I'll, I'll never forget this. My thought was, I can't die right now. I am a father. <laughs> and I hadn't been, but for a matter of a few hours. But it already so transformed my mind in an instant of, of you know, adrenaline. Yeah. That's the first thing that came to my mind. Yeah. I just I just want to say, you know, that that's just a part of the structure of grace. And uh, so... You know, I, 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 all this is in my mind all the time. I don't want to disappoint my children. I don't want to disappoint my wife. I don't want to disappoint my church. I don't want to disappoint my denomination. I don't want to disappoint uh, the young people. Look, I look out on this campus and I see thousands of incredibly committed Christian young people and, and an incredible group of Christian young men training to be pastors. Uh, can you imagine uh, the, the weight of knowing that you don't want to ever disappoint them? Hmm. I'll get choked up here. I mean, I preached in chapel this morning and just to have the students before me and have them come up and talk to me afterwards, you think, you know, you screw this up. There is going to be judgment to pay. Mm. And so I'll just say that when I do the briefing or anything else, I try to say nothing that I'm going to be embarrassed by in the future and, uh, and hold nothing back in conviction. And, and look, sometimes I have to kind of work off a little bit of energy because I mean, we have to talk about some very hard things. I just got to think. So one of the secrets I do when, when I'm in the studio like this, and I'm able to do the briefing here. I talk to some of my interns, they're, they're students and they have staff in here. I talk to some of them about some of these things before I talk about them uh, on the air, so to speak, uh, just so I run off a little bit of energy uh, before I, uh, I jump into the conversation. I think at times they think I'm just, they, they wonder what I'm doing. Yeah. Because they know <laughs> I'm getting ready to talk about this. And I say, look, I just... Uh, just need to just need to let some energy out before I go live with Mike. Well, I, I, I probably answered over answered that. No, no, you, really it was exactly good. what I wanted. It, yeah, because it, I it, wanted. It's the thing I say to parents too. If I could just say this, there are times parents you know, in, in correction. There, there are times I, I will just tell you one of the most important things, and especially when your children, you know, 
well, I'll just say all the time, because I don't think they ever get too old to have this kind of vulnerability. You're, you can crush your children very quickly, and you're called to teach them and to discipline them. But I will just say, look, one of the things I knew my dad did was talk some things through before he came to talk to me. Mm-hmm. Back then, I'm alive today, probably says something about that. Well, it's just we're the dear listener you're you may not have a platform like dr muller's but you can do everything that he just described mm. in whatever your assignment is from god you can follow those steps and thank you for sharing because i want yeah, i want to stress that, that. It, it, and because i say this pastorally and as a pastor to others you know and this is this relates to more than parenting it relates to you know even when you have to have a difficult conversation with someone you need some people with whom you can have that conversation before you have the conversation if that makes sense. And, mm-hmm. and that sometimes really helps. I just want to tell pastors, pastors, before you say some really hard thing from the pulpit, which you're called to do, you're called to say some really hard things from the pulpit, you know, gather together a couple of men you really trust and say them in front of them and make sure that's the way you want to say it. Then get up in the pulpit and say it. That's perfect. Mm. So we have a saying at Awana. Uh, we say Awana is centered on the gospel, rooted in scripture, and will never move even one inch off of the Bible. Uh, as you think about organizations like ours and local churches who would say very similar things, but you look into the future and you see perhaps what what could happen with the future of uh, secularism and post-Christendom, et cetera. What, what advice would you give to a church and to an organization like ours that could one day in the future be pressured to start moving off of scripture. Yeah, you know, one of my academic areas that I teach in and write in is historical theology. So I do systematic theology and uh, apologetics, but historical theology, just looking at the history of the Christian church, what what do we need to watch throughout the history of the church in terms of theological challenges and developments? And and one of the things I often try to point out is that uh, there's a tension in church history. And the way I describe it is this, it's between what can be assumed and what must be articulated. And so there are times in which, you know, the Christian church had to come up with theological answers to heresy or to theological problems. And, you know, we have creeds and confessions and official doctrines. And, you know, on some of the most pressing issues of the day, uh, you know, I can remember when I was a a very young uh, seminary student, we had the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy came out in 1978. And uh, and then later we had the Danvers Statement on Biblical Gender and uh, the Roles of Men and Women that came out about 1984. And uh, then you just follow through, you know, even more recently, the the uh, the Nashville Statement on Biblical Sexuality, which I had a, a big part in helping to produce just a few years ago. Because uh, you can't assume these things anymore. Now you got to say it out loud. You got to put it in print. You, you got to say, this is what we believe. And uh and I, I would say for organizations that serve the church and are Christian organizations, you got to lean into the what must be articulated. In other words, you need to say, here are our principles. They're written down. Here are our beliefs. They're written down. Here are our moral principles. They're written down. Here is our worldview. It's 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 written down. It's summarized here. Because without that, uh, you, you just have everybody kind of saying, well, you know, my version of that is this. That doesn't work. And And then, by the way, writing it down and adopting it formally and saying, this is what we require of everyone who's going to teach here, work here, you know, uh, be a part of this. Uh, there's also the fact that you've got to teach it. So it's not it's not enough. And again, Martin Luther, the great reformer, you know, put it this way. He said, you know, w- w- it's not enough to have the doctrine. Doctrine means teaching. 
if you're not teaching the doctrine, you will not have the doctrine. Mm-hmm. And you can just say that about the entirety of Christian truth. And and you need to, I mean, there are technical things you need to make sure in board selection and other things. Everybody is not just saying, okay, I can sign on to that, but you know, that's what I believe. That's what I'll be a part of. That's what I want to perpetuate. And uh and, and so all that just needs to be worked in. And you know, the great challenge is we have to pass off this work to the next generation. And we got to get that generation ready. And uh, so there's an enormous transfer that's got to take place, and we better be getting ourselves ready for that. Mm. Wow, this has been really good. We're gonna we're gonna kind of land the plane here with one final question. Uh, you know, part of what you do professionally is to uh, to to analyze the cultural decline around us. So you're really close to to all of that as you evaluate what what gives you hope in the midst of all of that. You know, uh, I am a Christian conservative, and 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 by that I mean I'm 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 a biblical Christian, and uh, just in terms of my understanding of the world, I'm a classical conservative, and uh, and by, I think those thing, two things go together, but that, that's a different conversation. But you know, um, Christians and and conservatives, and certainly a Christian conservative understands that things go wrong, empires fall, kingdoms become dissolute. Uh, history doesn't run in an endly, endless, inevitable, progressive direction. Uh, Rome fell. Uh, things fall apart. Uh, and so we're the people who aren't surprised by that. And so that's the bad news. It's it's in the Christian tradition, that's called Augustinianism. As the, you know, Augustine, the great church father, was writing at the fall of the Roman Empire, trying to explain how that could happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, came to the conclusion, you know, uh, empires rise and fall. That's in the scripture. And there, there are reasons for that, you know, decay, dissolution, weakness, uh, immorality, corruption. But, but nonetheless, they, they, they rise and fall. So that's the bad news. Okay. And there's some near good news, and there's some ultimate good news. The ultimate good news is Jesus Christ is Lord. So, but there's also some near good news. Okay. So the Christian worldview, based upon the revelation of God in Scripture, also tells us that even as there is decay, there's also conservation. And so, you know, the church survived the fall of the Roman Empire. That was, many people were wondering about that. How, how, does, how does that work? Uh, well, the church survives because it is the body of Christ. Uh, because Christ lives, the church will survive. And not only that, the goods survived, even the fall of the Roman Empire. Marriage survived. The family survived. It didn't become less necessary. It actually became even more necessary. It's, or I should say this, its need became even more visible, the need for marriage and family and and neighborhood and structure and kin, and uh, and and so that that's that's what gives me hope. The ultimate hope is is that all things will be made well because Jesus Christ is Lord and His kingdom is coming. But I also know that before that, every child's life uh, that we impact for good, that's a bit of that's a bit of conserving all that's good. That's a bit of preserving what we're called to preserving, conserving what we're called to conserve. You know, every, every yard that gets mowed is a testimony to the fact that we are not giving in. Every, every, every field, Augustine made this very clear, it's one of the big issues. Every field that gets planted and harvested is a reminder of the fact that God's grace is available to us even right now. Every time a mother loves her child, every time a young man and a young woman fall in love and become committed in the bonds of holy matrimony, every time a father puts his I get emotional talking about this. Every time a father puts his arm around his son as they're walking down a path, mm. there's a sign that God is not throwing us into an abyss. Mm. That, 
the goods continue. And the Christian church knows, knows that the goods continue because Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's the Christian churches and the Christian's individual responsibility to try to encourage those good things, to celebrate them as gifts from God, and uh, to use the time in order to tell people and in your ministry so wonderfully to tell them, especially children, about Jesus. The Child Discipleship Podcast is powered by Awana. Thanks to the donations of generous folks like you, Awana partners with 62,000 churches in 130 countries to make resilient disciples. When you give to Awana, you are investing in lasting faith. Young people who will engage the culture with the gospel and fearlessly lead the church into the future. To make a donation to this mission, go to awana.org slash donate. Subscribe to the podcast today so you never miss an episode and check out the show notes of today's episode for relevant links from this conversation, as well as information about other podcasts from Awana. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.